1 Kings chapter 2 tonight. Last time we began a new study together in the book of Kings, and tonight as we come into chapter 2, really a lot of what we see here, chapter 2, another lengthy chapter, we sort of see the transition now of David as David gives his final exhortation to Solomon, his son, who's his successor upon the throne. We'll see David's death and departure from this life and really the the transition of a new administration, much like what takes place every four years if someone new is voted into the White House, a new administration takes place. And with that, there are a lot of changes and transitions. There are things that happen as far as people maybe who had positions that no longer hold those positions any longer. And we'll see a lot of that going on as the uh, throne of Solomon is now established as the new king of Israel. And really, what I think one of the New Testament principles that kind of uh, you know is overlaid well in this chapter here, 1 Kings chapter 2, is what Paul says in the book of Galatians chapter 6 where he makes this statement, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap corruption everlasting life and again this spiritual principle that the bible gives to us uh, that god's never going to be mocked and just like if you sow an apple seed you're never going to reap an orange tree out of that 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 when you sow seeds you reap in kind and there may be a gap of time even between the sowing and the reaping but when you sow a certain type of seed that you're going to reap in kind that is just a principle and so the word of God taking that analogy in the same way I think many times that that our decisions in life ought to be looked at as as seeds and a lot of times when I speak to people particularly younger people I try and help them grasp that concept look every decision you make it's like you just sowed a seed whether small decisions or big decisions and certainly this is something that I hope we begin to mature and understand as adults as we live longer reality kind of convinces of it uh, that fact to us but uh, that what we do so we are going to reap and that works both in the positive and in the negative in a good way and in a bad way it's not always just a negative thing that oh well if you make bad choices you're going to reap bad consequences in your life the same applies true as well that if you sow good seeds and you sow to the things of God and what's righteous and moral and proper and good uh, that in time God's going to honor that and good fruit's going to come into your life and there'll be blessing and reward and the experience of a good crop of fruit that's going to come into your life that you're going to be able to enjoy and and I really think as you look at chapter 2 what we see happening in the midst of this sort of the sovereign overlay of what God's doing is God's beginning to show different individuals that made decisions way earlier on in their lives some of them during David's reign some of them even beyond that all the way back to the time of Samuel and Eli the priest and what's happening now is the reaping and the fruit of those things are finally coming to pass and there might have been a big gap of time in between but God's showing listen you, you, you can't mock me 
and if you make certain decisions, ultimately those decisions will catch up with you in time. Uh, and ultimately the realities of those things, the reaping of those things do come to pass. And really I think that's a lot of the lesson that we see taking place. So keep that in mind as we go through some of this. It may seem like you know inconsequential and historical, but really that's a lot of the underlying theme I think God is trying to speak to us in these chapters here. Now remember, at this point in 1 Kings 2, uh, David had to take initiative because it seems he was being a little bit passive. And as his health was declining, one of his sons, Adonijah, began to promote himself and exalt himself, the Bible told us, to present himself as the likely candidate to be the successor of King David, his father's throne, and, and wanting the position for himself, uh, operating in a fleshly ambition, he started trying to campaign and promote himself and kind of rally to himself some support. He got Joab on his side and, and one of the priests on his side and was kind of presenting to the people, hey, I should be the one to succeed my father's throne. And like an opportunist, he saw David's health was declining. David was kind of like on hospice care. And so he was kind of trying to present himself as the obvious one who should have succession to the throne. When the reality was that God had sovereignly revealed and indicated that Solomon was the one who was to have succession of the throne. Which let me just say as a sidelight to that, as I didn't say it last time, you want to talk about an indication of the grace of God? Because who was Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba? You remember the whole Bathsheba incident? Now, the first child that was conceived as the result of their immoral relationship, as a result of consequence, didn't make it, had health conditions and died. But the next son given then to this marriage that ultimately happened then between David and Bathsheba as he murdered Uriah, her husband, to try and cover up the initial sin. David then took her to himself as a, himself as a wife and the next son they conceived was Solomon. And think of this, of all the sons, David had multiple wives and many sons, of all the sons God could have chosen to be the successor to King David's throne, the messianic line of Christ, God chose Solomon, the son of the relationship of David and Bathsheba, despite how messy and horrific the rocky beginning of that whole thing was. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And it is phenomenal how God is able to take something that may be very unfortunate to start with rocky and messy and you know, defiled and, and, you know, sin involved and so forth. And God can take that and just work his grace upon it. And probably if you would have asked from a natural perspective, or even let me go further, let's say maybe even a religious leader in that day, who do you think from your spiritual perspective should be the successor of King David's throne? I bet you at the bottom of the list would have been Solomon. Because most people would have said, son, no way. He hasn't deserved to be. I mean, of all people, not only is he too young, but I mean, Solomon, he's from that immoral thing with, I mean, no way. But that's just the grace of God uh, and how God loves to demonstrate at times his amazing grace. So Solomon was the chosen successor. David had to step forward and indicate this to the people. So he coronated Solomon as a young man. Remember, at this time, Solomon's probably somewhere only around probably somewhere between realistically maybe 16 and 20 years old at this point in time 
And David makes him a co-regent with himself at the end of his life now to indicate that this is the Lord's choice. Adonijah then sort of steps back and backs down. And when Solomon then is given that position publicly incarnated and recognized by the people as David indicates and anoints him as the next king, Adonijah then became fearful because he realized I just tried to usurp the throne from the rightful king but Solomon very graciously rather than eliminate his brother or put him to death showed his wisdom even very early on we saw at the end of chapter 2 Solomon said to him look I know that you're afraid but Solomon said in verse 52 of chapter 1 if he proves himself a worthy man not one hair of him shall fall to the earth but if wickedness is found in him he then shall die. So King Solomon sent to bring him down from the altar where he was sort of clinging for life, afraid to die. And he came and fell down before Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. In other words, Solomon extended to him mercy. And he said, look, I'm going to grant you mercy. But at the same time with wisdom, he said, however, you will prove out your own future. If you prove yourself to be changed and repentant and you prove that you're worthy and, and that you recognize your error and then you walk the straight and narrow, Mercy is yours and, and I won't bring consequence upon you. And if you prove by your choices that you have a changed heart and you're, you're genuinely repentant and sorry for what you did, mercy is yours. But he says, by the same token, if you prove that your heart hasn't changed and that you're going to go right back to the same shenanigans, if you would, he says, then know that then death sentence is going to come upon you. You're going to bring your own consequence upon your own head. Now, with that backdrop, it tells us chapter 2, verse 1, Now the days of David drew near that he should die. Again, he's at this point sort of in ill health, on hospice care, as we saw. So he knows he's about to die. And right before he departs, he wants to impart some words of wisdom, some dying words to his son Solomon, particularly because Solomon now is going to take over the throne of Israel. He's going to take over a, a role that has a lot of responsibility uh, among the people of God. So David wants to charge him. He wants to give him an exhortation. And he gives to him this exhortation here in chapter 2 in the beginning. A longer exhortation is actually recorded in, in First Chronicles. We'll see that when we get here. This is sort of the summarized version of it. But this is really great stuff. Particularly, let me say, if you're a father and you have a son. And particularly if you're a, a adult Christian man and maybe you have a spiritual son or just some young men in your life that God gives you influence upon or the opportunity to minister to, that, that these would be the kind of things that you would give them an exhortation about and that you charge them over. So he charges Solomon saying to him, verse 2, I go the way of all the earth, be strong therefore and prove yourself a man. I like David's exhortation. He realizes, listen, Solomon, this king thing is not going to be easy. There are going to be challenges. And, and this manhood thing to live for God is not going to be easy. There are going to be temptations and challenges. So the first thing he says to Solomon is he says, look, I'm about to depart. And the first thing he says to him is, listen, you be strong. You have backbone. Demonstrate strength and courage and fortitude in your character. And I don't think he's saying be strong, go to the gym and pump iron. He's saying be strong inwardly and prove yourself to be a man. Now, again, the worldly mentality would interpret that many different ways. I mean, what does it mean to prove yourself a man? Well, the world's mentality might be, well, 
Like, you know, go to the gym and pump iron and prove yourself physically strong and mentally strong and, you know, capable to be able to exert your masculinity and, and, and all these, you know, ideas. You know, what does authentic manhood look like? I'll tell you one thing, our world is very confused about that right now. And tragically, that's why I think we have a lot of young men in our culture that are very broken and very confused. And we see that as we watch what just unfolds constantly in society because of the broken condition of young men, whether it's because of absentee fathers or just the, the genuine error of not truly teaching young men what authentic manhood looks like. That it's not necessary. Again, I'm not that I'm negating these other things of masculinity and being tough and you know, can you take a punch or you know, can you take on responsibilities or can you be a strong provider? I'm not negating that that's a value. But genuine manhood is something much deeper than being able to take a punch or throw a punch or, or being able to uh, you know, go out and hustle and make money. I mean, there, there are a lot deeper, more important things about what it means to be an authentic man. Jesus is the indication of authentic manhood. That, that is the perfect man that ever lived. And so here, David, as an older, godly man, knows he's about to die I mean, he sort of, you know, squares up with his young son. Again, like I said, 16, 17, maybe 18 to 20 years old. This is Solomon's age. He's now becoming the king of Israel. And he's got a lot of responsibility. And David realizes, listen, you need to be strong. You need to have courage and prove yourself. Demonstrate, he says, that you can be a man. And then he goes on to explain what his heart is behind that. He says, and keep the charge of the Lord, your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His judgments, and His testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, the recorded word of God at that time, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So he says, Solomon, listen, here's how you can be strong and prove yourself a man. Do what is the will of God. Keep his statutes and his ordinances keep his charge and walk in his ways that is his ways not your ways there's nothing manly about that anybody can be a selfish jerk i have to sense david <laughs> david had done it and some of this comes from david's own awareness of i've failed in these areas i don't want to see you fail in these areas son do things different than me. I, you know, someone like David, and, and I think we, to some degree, can probably relate to ourselves, it's almost as if he has that awareness of, listen, some of these battle scars from stupidity, you don't need these, son. There's nothing manly about being able to make bad decisions and poor choices and have battle scars from regrets in your life. There's nothing manly about that. Son, from the very beginning, walk in his ways. Don't walk in the ways of the world. Don't walk in your own ways of selfishness. Walk in his ways, in God's ways, and keep the word of God. Live by the word of God, he's telling him. As is written, live by the written word of God. Let that be what dictates to you how you make your decisions, how you live your life, how you walk out your existence of manhood and the roles and responsibilities of being a king. Again, if you follow God's ways and his commandments, that would make him a good and successful man and a good and successful king. And so David is exhorting him to, to seriously 
take this charge upon himself. And he says, if you do this, look, if you walk in God's ways and keep God's statutes and God's commandments from his word, he says, there's benefit to this, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. God honors that. God blesses and rewards that as we live within the boundaries of his word and honor his ways over the world's ways or our own ideas and ways. There's benefit and prosperity to that. He says, verse 4, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So he reminds Solomon of a promise of God. He says, listen, God made a promise to me that if my sons from the line of David would walk, he says, before God in truth with all their heart and all their soul, that God would continue to keep a man from David's line reigning upon the throne of Israel. Now, I, I think God takes his word seriously and honors his promise. And if David's sons had continued to do that, there probably to this day would still be someone reigning in Israel from David's line. Uh, and so he reminds him, listen, there's something at stake here. God's given a promise to us and he's saying, son, God's given promises. Don't miss his promise. He's saying, don't abandon the promise of God. God's given a promise. I'm not just saying these things to say them. There's a promise of God available to those of us who honor God and do what God says. And again, I think in some ways as we charge and challenge our young men and certainly our young women as well or our children, if we're going to give a challenge or exhortation, we want them to understand. Look, I'm not just saying these things so that you can be righteous or self-righteous or you know, live a good life, that they understand, listen, your life will benefit. God has promises and good things he wants to do in your life. And if you honor God, he's going to honor you. And he's going to bring blessing into your life. And, and there are promises for you and for your family that could be experienced. Now, as he goes on in verse 5, he now begins to give him instructions through the remainder of the chapter, as I said, of different things he's now to carry out, business to execute, as he sort of assumes the role of the government of the nation of Israel. He, he kind of, this is again, one administration transitioning to the next and saying, here's some unfinished business it's your job now. <laughs> you take care of it now. These are things I left unaddressed, so uh, you get to inherit this. And every new president loves that kind of stuff. But verse 5, he says to him, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and also Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And notice, he shed the blood of war in peacetime again it wasn't that Joab was wrong in shedding blood in time of war the Bible does not condemn that the Bible does not condemn those who shed blood in the midst of warfare and combat the Bible says there's a time of peace and a time of war there are times when God even instructed Israel to initiate military advances and so there are times within the sovereignty of God when it is actually a part of God's sovereign will and plan that, that war and bloodshed in war is necessary. Now listen, loss of any innocent life is horrible and it's, and it's a shame. I understand that. But what Joab had done wrong is Joab was guilty, not of the bloody shed in war, but he was guilty of shedding blood 
in peacetime, particularly these two men who were military commanders, who he just murdered. This was premeditated murder. And the Bible always makes a distinction between bloodshed and killing someone in the act of war and military conflict as compared to murder, which is selfish, premeditated decision to kill an innocent person, not in conflict or combat where there are two combatants going on. And the Bible makes the distinction. And this is what Joab was guilty of. We saw this in our earlier studies. Two different times he, in premeditated murder, killed and took two innocent men's lives, Abner and Amasa, really for his own purposes and advantages, he says, and he put the blood of war, therefore, on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Again, that blood of war on his belt and on his sandals is referring to the fact that during peacetime he shed blood and so in a sense the idea is he stained himself permanently and God saw that murder and the guilt of that on his life as sort of a stain and, and David's reminding Solomon of these things and he says verse 6 therefore according to your wisdom do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace in other words he was guilty of murder and the Bible said that those who were guilty of murder it was a capital offense all the way back from the book of Genesis that when man sh sheds another man's blood by man his blood shall be shed that capital crime losing your life the death penalty is what the Bible says for those who sink to the place where they don't value human life and innocently murder a person and take their life so he's saying listen I never dealt with Joab and again I think there were some reasons why David never brought Joab fully to justice though he was David's military commander but he's saying Solomon I'm charging you with this now you deal with him and, and, and make sure he's held to account. Take his life ultimately for what he did. It was wrong. And, and, I, and maybe perhaps he's thinking, I just charged you to do things. And Solomon, I never did them myself. So carry this out. Do what I never did and I should have done before I got to this place to the end of my life. But verse 7, show kindness, the opposite now, to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. And let them be among those who eat at your table, benefiting from the king's blessings for so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So again, remember Barzillai was that person when David was fleeing from Absalom, pushed off the throne in Jerusalem during the time of Absalom's rebellion. Barzillai came and he just graciously and generously brought provisions to David and his men, helped them, supported David at a very difficult time in his life when many were not being loyal to him. And, and notice, he says, show kindness to him, reward him for the good things that he's done, for the good things that he sowed into my life, now the throne is saying this person deserves reward. In the same way that the throne can dispatch as a reaping consequence judgment, the throne can also reap out rewards and say, listen, th this man deserves reward and benefit. Let him benefit from the good decisions and right things that he did. Verse 8, and he says, see how you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan and I swore to him by the Lord saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do with him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So he goes from someone who helped him now back to someone else who was basically had the reputation of being a, a trouble starter, a troublemaker. You remember Shimei who came out to David and he was maliciously 
cursing David and saying, this is happening because you deserve it. He was throwing stones at him and, and cursing David and dishonoring him. And again, it says in, I believe it's Exodus 22, that we're to honor God and not curse the king. And so again, this man in violation to the word of God was doing these things. However, remember when David came back, he was one of the first to show up and then was pleading for mercy. Hey, I'm sorry about that whole thing out there, David, that you know just wasn't myself that day. And, and, and David was merciful to him. He was gracious to him in that moment, in that vulnerable hour. And he says to Solomon, verse 8, I swore to him by the Lord saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. He then says, verse 9, now therefore... You don't hold him guiltless. Almost if he says, look, I swore to him that I wouldn't kill him. But that doesn't mean you can't. <laughs> You're the new administration. So uh, deal with this. This guy tends to be a troublemaker. And I think David recognized too that notice he was a Benjamite. Who came from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. And so perhaps there was always something he knew in Shimei and his family from Benjamin that he kind of always had this affinity to the throne of of Saul's house and knew that this guy could be a potential troublemaker no matter what happened uh, and maybe it will be better to have him not be able to cause more problems verse 10 says so David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David a reference to his death and the period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years Seven years he reigned in Hebron. Remember, that was his initial place of reign for just over the southern area. And, and then, after seven years reigning in Hebron, in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Again, the expanded kingdom. So the 40-year reign of King David now comes to a close. David dies, the Bible says, rested with his fathers, buried there in the city of David in Jerusalem. And verse 12 says, Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. And again, I can't continue to bring back to mind, remembering as these last words of David come, some instructions, together with all of that, here's this young man, 16, 18, 20 years old, taking over for King David. I mean, this incredible king of Israel. And again, talk about big shoes to fill. I mean, somebody, if they get... You know, blessed may get the opportunity to to rule and reign in our country, and not as a monarch. This is these are monarchs; these are kings for eight years in our country. David was the king of Israel for forty years, for four decades. David, this man who was known to be a man after God's own heart, this lover of the Lord—I mean, this mighty military general—now his young son inexperienced, naive, wet behind the... He just steps into all this. Uh, again, a huge responsibility you have to understand he's undertaking. Verse 13 says, Now Adonijah, remember him from last chapter, that's the brother that tried to exalt himself to the throne so that Solomon wouldn't get it. The son of Haggith came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said to him, do you come peaceably? Again, wh why are you coming to see me after all that happened, she says. And he said, oh, peaceably, uh, no, nothing to worry about. Again, it almost senses that, you know, you almost tend to be suspicious sometimes. And, and uh, sometimes we need to listen to that when there's a little bit of discernment of well, what are you coming here for? She kind of said, but yeah, I'm just peaceful, no problem. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, well, say it. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. Boy, that's presumptuous. And all Israel had set their expectations on me. Boy, that's pretty presumptuous. 
I, the kingdom was mine and everybody had their expectation that I should reign. However, he says, the kingdom has been turned over, is what it is, I guess that's what happened, and has become my brother Solomon's. Then he says, for it was his from the Lord. Now, I, I have no idea what he means by that. I, I mean, is that a way to try and sound spiritual there that he wants to bring a little God speak into the conversation to take down people's defenses or is this guy just you know trying to, to act well I mean yeah everybody did want me but you know the Lord's will be done I mean it was turned over to him even though I was the people's choice I mean we, uh, I mean, the Lord turned it over to him so I guess you know we got to let this guy have the throne because uh, that's kind of what happened but verse 16 he, again here's his true heart intention and this goes back to what Solomon said you'll prove out if your heart's genuine or if you still have an unhealthy heart and this is what we see now he says to Bathsheba Solomon's mother now I ask one petition of you do not deny me and she said to him say it he said please go speak to King Solomon your son he's thinking for he will not refuse you that he may give to me Abishag the Shunammite as wife so Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Now here's what's going on. Remember, Abishag the Shunammite was the young woman, the virgin woman they brought in to be like a personal nurse to David and just to help provide to him assistance in his you know, deathbed as he's dying in the last days and hours of his life to help generate body heat. But it says David didn't know her. There was nothing impure going on. And now we see why the Bible is telling that because now, interesting, of all the people in the land, this, lo and behold, is now who Adonijah wants as his wife and he's saying, go to Solomon because he has to give permission because when you succeed a throne, you inherit everything that goes with the throne, harem and all, wives and concubines and so forth. So he says, I need Solomon's permission. Would you tell him this is who I want as a wife? Now, this may look naive on the surface. Oh, well, she's just a you know, young, beautiful woman and maybe he had fallen in love. But what he also understands is this, culturally, when you took to yourself someone's wife or concubine or anyone in there, any part of a, a king's harem, that was a way of indicating that you had basically sort of usurped power over the throne. I mean, typically, when you would take over a, a nation and you would conquer a king, you would conquer all of his inheritance and to take his harem or his wives and so forth was a way of just demonstrating your power. So he's looking to have this woman by his side now as a wife as a way to begin to have a back door in to again potentially usurp the throne away from his brother and so he's manipulating now his mom <laughs> to try and get this crafty plan like a schemer to come to pass and Bathsheba says therefore went to the king to speak to him for Adonijah now is she just naive maybe or maybe does she know again we're only reading into the possibilities here or does she know oh I'd be glad to ask Solomon that for you because Solomon's not dumb and as soon as I ask him that off with your head boy you're done he's gonna uh, she, it could have been that she recognized that and that's why she consents to go and make this request or maybe she just naively is doing it not picking up but either way watch what happens Bathsheba goes to the king to speak to him for Adonijah and the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and he had a throne set for the king's mother that's a good son if you're the king you want to have a little throne for your mom there too 
She's the one who helped get you there, right? So she sat there at his right hand. And then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask away, mama. I won't refuse anything from you. You're, you're my mom. So she said, okay, let Abishag, verse 21, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. Notice, instantly, King Solomon answered. He, he saw through this right away and said to his mother, now why do you ask Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? He said, you might as well ask for him the whole kingdom. Ask for him the whole kingdom, he says, if you're going to do that. For he's my older brother and also for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. He realized this was just part of a conspiracy that they're still trying to manipulate through a backdoor approach now to get what they want. And a lot of times, unfortunately, people who are manipulative and schemers, that's what they do. If they can't get in the front door, they always somehow find a backdoor to get ultimately what they want some different way. And, this, and so Solomon sees with incredible wisdom right through what's going on here. And he realizes this is just an attempt to try and posture himself to push out Solomon and to position himself to take over the position and the throne. And so he says, what are you doing, Mama? That would be like giving him away the kingdom. So verse 23, King Solomon swore by the Lord saying, may God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. There he proved that he was a wicked man and Solomon had warned him if he did demonstrate he was unrepentant that he would bring his own consequence on his life. Now therefore as the Lord lives who's confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father and who's established a house for me as he promised Adonijah shall be put to death today. Bottom line Solomon is a man of his word right there. He told this guy listen I'm telling you if you do what's right things will be okay. But if you think that you can continue to do what's wrong and disregard the boundaries that I'm setting and, the, and if you think that you can do what's wrong and there'll be no consequence, he warned him when he set him home the first time, when he was merciful and gracious at his first failure, he said, listen, though I've been gracious and merciful, if you persist and you keep doing what's wrong, you're going to suffer for it. You're going to lose your life. And so now Solomon is just as a just ruler bringing his execution because of what he has just done. And verse 25 says, King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, and struck him down and he died. So executes him for what he did. And Abiathar, the priest, the king said, go to Ananoth to your own fields for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David and because you were afflicted every time my father David was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill, notice, fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Now, you're going all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 there going way back you're going generations back at that point at this point here now whether solomon knew he was fulfilling the word of the lord that was given back in first samuel as a prophecy i don't necessarily know if that's the case but god wants us to know that that prophecy that was made generations ago to eli the priest who remember his sons were wicked 
and they were evil and he did not restrain his sons and, and God rebuked him as the priest and said, because you honor your sons more than me. In other words, God was saying, you care more about keeping your sons happy and pleasing your children than you do pleasing me and you bow down to their wishes rather than do my will. He said, you're going to lose the opportunity to continue in your ministry and your priesthood and ultimately you will be removed and your family line will be removed from the priesthood. And that prophecy of the consequence of what Eli did was something that was pronounced generations ago. It didn't happen immediately, but now here it is happening through the midst of just sovereign circumstances because Abiathar, who now Solomon is removing from his priesthood there in verse 26, he says, you are deserving of death. Why? Because he had consp conspired together with Adonijah to try and steal away the throne and had done things. So he says, listen, you deserve to die, but I'm going to be merciful to you because you did serve faithfully, he says, they're together with David, my father. So rather than put you to death, I'm going to show mercy. And he basically just forced him into retirement. And he said, you're just, you're removed from office. <laughs> you're losing your position. Give me your resignation. Let's make it as shameless as possible. You, you did what was cheating and crooked and wrong and you abused your position and power you're forced into retirement he says go to Ananoth retire there because of the good things you've done take a dishonorable discharge the idea is kind of there and he basically replaces him with someone else now as the priesthood but the Bible says him being removed from his position by the the, the chief official in government from the priest of the Lord was a fulfillment of of a prophecy from generations ago. And again, here's God. What's he doing? God's not mocked. What a man sows ultimately will be reaped. And what Eli did all the way back then, Abiathar, one of his descendants now, is being removed. And a new priest, Zadok, will be put in the line of the priesthood. And then things will continue through that line. And so again, God here intervening, allowing events to transpire but coordinating all the things that he controls ultimately and ultimately, you know what God's doing? He's getting his way. God's always going to get his way, man. We are utterly naive if we think somehow that just because we can cheat the system in the world or cheat other people that somehow, somehow we're going to subvert God and, and, and get our way somehow. That's never going to work with God. And so God here intervenes. This man loses his position. He's removed from power by King Solomon. And verse 28 says, Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, again, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab, knowing he's in trouble now, fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Again, this was a way to kind of beg for mercy in asylum. And it says, as he's there holding on to the horns of the altar, King Solomon was told about this and said, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and he's by the altar. And Solomon sent to Benaniah, who's now his chief military guy, his minister of defense, if you would. And he said to him, go strike him down. Go put him to death, as his father told him to execute Joab as well. So Benaniah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said, Thus says the king, come out. Probably because they didn't want to shed blood in the tabernacle of the Lord. No, he says, but I will die here. And Benaniah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. 
And the king said to him, Do as he has said, strike him down, and then bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood. Again, remember, that's what Joab was guilty of. And until this this was dealt with, this innocent blood cried out to God. Until it was dealt with justly, this was something that brought guilt in a way upon the nation and needed to be rectified. It needed to be justly dealt with. This is why justice is important in a culture. Because God cares about justice in a nation and things being dealt with when there's evil and crime and things like this happen. And Joab was guilty of crime, of murder. So the Lord will return his blood on his own head and he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and notice, killed them with the sword. Again, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of army of Israel and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants, but upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him and killed him, the second execution, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Again, long gap of time. But what Joab had done thinking, hey, I'm entitled to do this. I'm the top military general. He was a a hardened combatant. He felt justified. Remember, in both of those murders, in the murder of Amasa and in the murder of Abner, Joab felt completely justified. In his own reasoning, he was justified in killing both of those men. In his own personal feelings, the way he felt about it, it was right. He even felt like, if you remember the stories, if nobody else is going to do what needs to be done, then I'll do it. And he took matters into his own hands and he did what was selfish and displeasing to God and he honored his own desires over the word of God and what was righteous. And as a result of that, eventually the consequence caught up to him and what he sowed, he's now reaping. He's reaping death as the result of the murders that he was guilty of. And again, reaping that consequence down the road, but ultimately God reconciled it in his justice and time. Verse 36, then the king sent and called for Shimei. Again, this one who was a troublemaker that cursed him. And look what he does to him. He says to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. So he kind of says, look, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be under house arrest, Shimei. You're a troublemaker. We all know it. You build a house right here in Jerusalem. So again, a small city in that day. We can keep an eye on you. But he says, don't go out from there. For it shall be, here's the warning, the prohibition, on the day when you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall surely die. There's the warning. And your blood shall be upon your own head. So he says to them, look, I'm going to allow you to live, but, but under, my, under these conditions. Don't leave the city. Remain under our surveillance so that we can make sure that you're not causing trouble for the throne or for the kingdom because you have a reputation of being a troublemaker, he says. So... If you do and you disregard my command of the throne and you disregard my authority, then he says, again, you're bringing by choice the consequence of punishment upon yourself and you'll lose your life. So Shimei, hearing this offer, said to the king, hey, the saying is good. Thank you for the opportunity, he says. As my lord, the king has said, so your servant will do. There you go. He gives his word. But giving your word means nothing if you don't keep your word. And you can say all the right things if you don't do the right things. It matters not at all. But he says, okay, I'm I'm willing to do that. Thanks for the opportunity. 
So Shimei, it says, dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened, verse 39, at the end of three years that two of his slaves ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, went to Achish, Gath, to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. Now, keep in mind here, he's violating the command from the throne. He's disregarding the authority that he was supposed to be living under. He had clearly spelled out for him, hey, here are the parameters. If you live within these parameters and boundaries, everything will be fine. If you violate these boundaries, do not think if you violate these boundaries that no problems are going to come. There are going to be consequences. For a season, he does it, but then ultimately, for whatever reasons, and again, was it he felt like, well, I mean, it's been three years. I mean, I, 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 I kind of you know, begin to adjust things a little bit or again, for whatever his reasoning was, keep in mind, if you have slaves, you can afford to send somebody else to go get your slaves. There was no justification. It, your slaves ran away. Well, I'll go, I'll go get them myself. Well, look, if you have money like that, you could send somebody else. There's no justification or excuses in this. But nonetheless, he disregards what was given to him as a command and as the result of that proves that even though he said he would do this, he proves out by his actions that he was going to choose to live the opposite way of doing what was right. So Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day that you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, the word I've heard is good. I'll do it. I promise. Why have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, moreover to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges, your heart's testifying. I don't need to even tell you what your heart's convicting you of, Shimei you know when you did it, it was wrong. This is just being brought to light now, but your own heart is acknowledging to you. And you know, whenever we disregard what we know is right, we usually don't need anybody else to really tell us that. God's hardwired this thing into all of us called a conscience. This internal judge inside of us that works really well if you listen to it, that when we do what's wrong, God testifies to your conscience and your conscience is acknowledging to you as an internal judge you know that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You disregarded what was right and stepped outside of the boundaries and selfishly did something you shouldn't have done. And, and so he says, your own heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be blessed before the Lord. So the king commanded Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada. This guy's busy. I mean, he's like the, this is a third execution. Solomon just took over, Benaniah. He must have had a sharp sword. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, he went out and he struck him down, third execution, and he died. And thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Again, another indication of sowing and reaping. Whatever his reasoning was, whatever his just thinking that somehow it would be okay if he stepped outside of the boundaries of what was right and righteous and he realized God's not mocked. You can't do that. 
And just because you say you're going to do what's right, listen, that is no guarantee that you're going to then follow through and do what's right. And I'm not saying that you can't say what's right and do what's right. That's, that's the hope. That's the intention. But, but Shimei is a perfect indication that a good beginning does not guarantee a good ending. A lot of people start really well, but very few actually finish well. And the Bible teaches us to be those who run the race and finish well. Paul says, I've kept the faith. I've finished my race. I've completed my course. Again, this whole idea of just because we start is no guarantee that we're going to finish. We need to recognize anybody can start a race. It takes a whole different level of commitment to finish the race, to stay the course, to stay in your lane, to not violate the, the rules and think somehow that, well, even though I, I violated the rules, I won't be disqualified. I can No, that's not... And so, so important here. Shimei shows us this reality that it is so important that we faithfully continue to keep doing what's right lest we bring upon ourselves the regret and the disappointment of, I mean, here this guy has this, he has an opportunity. I mean, he did some really dumb stuff. He didn't even deserve Solomon being gracious to him and Solomon gave him a shot and was gracious to him, but he spurned the grace and he brought death and execution upon his own head. So sad. You know, God spare us from that in our own lives. Well, let's wrap it up there. Let's stand, pray together. Read ahead. Chapter 3, we get into some really awesome things where Solomon is going to start worshiping and seeking the Lord. He's going to have God appear to him and say to him, Hey, Solomon, pray and tell me whatever you want. What do you want? Can you imagine God saying that to you? And especially saying that to a 16 or an 18-year-old kid, what they'd ask for. And, And what Solomon asks for and how God answers is really, really incredible.